Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Everybody Fits Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Kim. Bit of a delay there, Kim. And today we've we've got the lovely Jason Wood (laughs) with us. And Jason has an absolutely fascinating background, a fascinating story. He is a men's mental health advocate. He is, I would call you a survivor of an eating disorder. Um, And he is now an author. So Jason, for everybody out there, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so thank you so much for uh, having me today. I'm Jason Wood, and I am recovering from an eating disorder known as orthorexia. And I've decided to turn that battle into a mission to get out there to share my story, encourage others to share their story, and uh, get the help that they deserve. I hope to confront the stigmas and the stereotypes that kept me from getting help for so long. And I just wanna ultimately change the narrative around eating disorders, because I think there's a lot more that we can do to raise awareness and a lot more we can do to uh, help those in need. That's amazing. And it's so brave and so strong of you to to take that on in such a, a, a fantastic way to empower yourself rather than to to let it take control of you so for those out there who don't know what orthorexia is can you explain it a little more yeah so I was in the same boat I had never heard of the term until I was months into my own treatment I was initially diagnosed with an unspecified eating disorder and that's because orthorexia is not in the DSM yet so it's not a a formal diagnosis But essentially what orthorexia is, is an obsession or an addiction to healthy eating. In my case, I was taking all of these different fad diets that exist and taking different rules and kind of molding them into what I thought was going to be the healthiest possible diet. The diet that was going to give me perfect health, that was gonna give me longevity, And that ultimately made me better than other people. It was one of those things where I developed a a superiority complex because I thought I was taking such good care of my body. The problem is I was so focused on the physical health that I was, uh, you know, ignoring the mental health, the social health, the emotional health. And it would ultimately take a toll on my entire body, on my entire life. And it got to the point where I was so fixated on different things such as macronutrients or the nutritional labels or the ingredients that I was becoming a very isolated, a very negative person because it consumed my entire life and ultimately became my identity. Yeah, I can so relate to that. And, you know, the scary thing is, is that as you will be very much aware because of the work that you do, it's so normalized behavior and and actually celebrated and pushed, especially, you know, in in the fitness industry. Um, how, How do you feel now? I mean, are you... I know for me, when I came up sort of the other side of the disordered eating behavior... I, had, I was very angry. Amy will know the anger's kind of slowly, but I'm I've turned that anger into panic, into passion. What? How? How are you feeling now? Are you angry or what? What are your feelings? Yeah. So it was a huge shock for me to realize that what I was doing was not the right thing, was not the healthy thing, because for so long I had been praised, I had been encouraged to continue doing what I was doing. And at first there was, there was that anger, there was that frustration, 
that we live in a world that's so consumed by diet culture, where so much of the rhetoric around food has just become normalized, where we judge foods as good or bad, or we then assign that moral value to us. And how many times do we go out to dinner with friends and they say, ooh, I'm gonna be bad tonight and have dessert. And it's just that type of language that we've normalized as a society. And I think it plays into diet culture's wants. That's what they want society to do because we keep coming back. We keep paying for diet plans. We keep paying for these fitness programs. And it, it's very frustrating because there's not the boundaries in place. There's not the thing that says, hey, you know, fitness results vary by individual. Your diet is not going to be the same as some super ultra athlete. But we lose that. It gets that those lines get blurred in our society nowadays. So there was a lot of frustration for a long time early on in, in my recovery process. Now I, I feel you because it's that passion. I'm out there to change the narrative. I want to redefine what health is and take that holistic approach to health, where it's more than just our physical health. It's our mental and our social well-being as well. So now I'm driven. I still get pushback from people. I will post my story on social media and I'll often get uh, fitness influencers and stuff who say, I was just bad at dieting, that orthorexia doesn't exist, that I didn't really have an eating disorder. And uh, it's, it's upsetting to hear that. But now rather than get angry about it, I turn it into a passion to educate and to change that narrative. That's amazing. How, how did you start to actually realize yeah. what you were doing was more of a problem rather than it's actually healthy. When did that click for you? Yeah, so it was when my husband voiced his concerns about not just my eating habits, but also this unresolved pain he saw inside, this anxiety that I was developing around food, uh, the fact that my personality was beginning to change. I have always been a very optimistic, a very positive person, but I was becoming very negative. I was becoming very aggressive. And it was actually an incident where we went out to dinner on vacation. And uh, vacations were always very stressful for me because I was leaving my food rules behind. I was leaving those safe places behind. And I would research restaurants endlessly. I would plan out every meal in advance to make sure I could adhere to my food rules. And while we were at this restaurant, uh, they were unable to substitute the, the pita bread for fresh vegetables on the hummus platter. And it was right then and there that I broke down, that I started crying, that I got angry. I was just done with this trip. I wanted to go home. I wanted to leave. And that's when he spoke up. And as soon as he spoke up, I realized I didn't want to live like this anymore. I was so tired of living with all of these food rules. It felt like I was in a hostage situation where something else was controlling me all the time. And it was in that moment that I was like, something's got to change because I can't, I can't keep doing this. That's so lovely to hear that you've got such a wonderful supporting husband that that's um you know that that was able to point it out to you and then that you would be open to to listen. So, you know, that that is that is really lovely to hear. It really yeah, is. Was... And it, it's scary as well that that is it's a very normal experience. I I know that I have been in, in a similar situation when I was struggling with my food and it, and it is that thing of um, 
it's very normalized with the likes of things like Weight Watchers to tell you if you're going out for dinner, why not look at the menu? And and now with things like calories mm. on menus, that will be quite triggering for a lot of people. I know for me, I can't have like I just don't like the idea of a menu with calories on because mm. I know how. I know I would still look at them, even though now I'm stepping away from that. I would still look at them and it, it would it would put me back into that place of anxiety. So when that was announced and that started to happen, how did that impact you? Yeah, that is, it's very difficult for me. So luckily here in the United States, we don't have it because I think they're in the UK, it's mandatory everywhere now, right? So luckily here, it's hit or miss. Uh, we'll have some restaurants that have it on there, some that don't. But the, having calorie counts on there is, is very triggering for me. It is still extremely difficult. I would say it's probably one of the most challenging things I come across in my recovery because for so long, those numbers dictated what I was going to eat. I wasn't going to a restaurant and ordering what I wanted to eat. I was ordering what the menu said I could eat, what those numbers said I could eat. And uh, that, that type of information out there is very difficult. The one thing that I've had to, to deal with in my recovery is having to almost unlearn everything I learned in my eating disorder, because I could get to the point where I could go to the market or the grocery store and basically list off the entire nutritional label in my head. I would even have to turn the item around to look at it and that's because I was studying this information endlessly probably hours a day looking at uh, the the carbohydrates and the proteins and the fats and all of that information so it's mm -hmm. become ingrained in my mind and now in recovery I've had to untrain myself because it's still to that point where I can look at an item and while I'm no longer tracking calories on my phone or in any apps or anything like that I've got that information in my head. You also mentioned Weight Watchers, and that is where my dieting began. I joined Weight Watchers in, in high school, and that is when um, I initially began to label foods as good or bad. And those numbers, those points are still in my head 15, 20 years later. I can still go back to uh, the numbers and kind of you know calculate it all up in my head. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I so relate to that as well. I used to be um, obsessed with protein and getting so much protein in. And then I, I used to have um, two boiled eggs for breakfast. And then like, that would be all I was allowed until like probably mid afternoon. And I, I still remember like, like the macronutrients of two boiled eggs and just, um, so I don't have two boiled eggs now because I'm like, I don't even have boiled eggs full stop because it just takes me back to that place, even though it has been a while. What, why, why do you think that orthorexia hasn't been officially defined as an eating disorder? And why, I mean, I know the answer to the question is why is there so much pushback because it, for some people, it seemed seen as normal, mm -hmm. um, quote unquote. But what 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 is it? Why do you think that it's not 
you know, defined as as an eating disorder in 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 the spaces that it needs to be. Yeah, so I think there's there's two reasons behind it, and the first one being that orthorexia is such a spectrum. There are individuals who have orthorexic behaviors. I think probably the majority of us at some point have exhibited orthorexic behaviors when it comes to our relationship with food or with exercise. And then there's those of us like me where it gets to the extremes and it almost costs us our lives. Um, I got to the point where I was at risk of sudden cardiac event because I was so obsessed with, with the good and the bad foods, quote unquote. So it, it's very difficult, I think, to define a diagnostic criteria at this point because it is such a wide spectrum, because you don't want to tell everybody they've got an eating disorder, but at the same time, you've got to figure out where that line is. When does it become just this, this want to eat healthy or this want to take care of ourselves? And then it morphs into this obsession, this addiction that can be life-threatening. So I think that's one reason. And I think the other reason is there's just not a lot of people out there talking about it yet. That's why I've gotten out there and started sharing my story, because I think we need more people to to simply talk about their experiences with orthorexia in order to, to raise that awareness. And um, I think the more stories that are shared, the more researchers and doctors can understand what this condition is actually like and why it really is an eating disorder. So um, I think both of those things are key to getting it included in the DSM. Yeah, I am aware that they are trying to get it included but I think it is an uphill battle and I, th I think getting anything medically recognized as well it takes years and years and years so to have something that is so broad be defined in in a very small reference I think it must be very very difficult um but I I also believe that it is good that it's starting to be recognized by medical professionals, despite the fact that it's not specifically a medical illness, so to speak, because otherwise there are so many people out there like yourself who would be seeking help and just be told, well, you, there's nothing wrong with you when, you know, it's a huge struggle. It's it's awful to live with to constantly have that thing in the back of your mind of, what will I eat? When will I eat? What's the next meal? How yeah. how am I going to cope being outside of the house? And I just won't eat anything. I won't eat all day and I'll wait till I get home. And, and then I'm in my safe space and I can cope and I can cook my own food and I can know exactly what I'm having. And, and it's that stress and anxiety when food's not supposed to be that. It's it's not at all. Um, so you mentioned that your dieting started with Weight Watchers. And that must have been, you're saying as a teenager, so it must have been years and years and years dealing with this and it progressing. So what was kind of the journey from a point A, starting at Weight Watchers to getting all the way along to being sat on this holiday with your husband and suddenly recognizing that you had an issue because it doesn't just start with, week one does it it's a huge progression exactly exactly this was a, a very slow progression of things so I had grown up overweight and I was picked on and bullied at school for for my body size 
And that sparked me to join Weight Watchers then in high school because I wanted to lose the weight for basically all the wrong reasons. Looking back now, I wanted to lose the weight so that I wouldn't be picked on anymore, so that I thought I could be valuable. I wasn't um, losing the weight really for myself. I was losing it because I thought others wanted me to and, and maybe they would approve of me. And uh, that's kind of when that journey began. That's when that seed was planted, where I started to differentiate foods and realize that, um, you know, some foods are not as nutritious as others. And uh, that's kind of when my whole relationship with food really changed. Because up until that point, I like to say I was an intuitive eater. I think most kids are intuitive eaters because they don't know all that information. Suddenly at Weight Watchers, all of that information was handed to me in several books that I could take home and read. So um, as time progressed, I went through some very challenging times in my life. I would lose both of my parents during my teenage years to cancer, and their deaths really rocked my world. It um, changed everything overnight. I went through periods of homelessness. I fell into drugs and alcohol. I um, faced uh, eviction from the apartment I was living in. I was arrested at one point, and I, I just went through some really turbulent times. But while all of this was happening, I was clinging to these food rules because they still gave me this sense of value, or so I thought they did. Um, they still gave me what I thought was control. So at that point, things were starting to worsen. I was becoming more and more dependent on these food rules, almost as a security blanket, while this storm was brewing in my life. Fast forward a couple more years, and uh, I had a close call with colorectal cancer. It was the same cancer that took my dad. And all of a sudden at age 29, I was showing symptoms. And I went in and I had a colonoscopy done and they found three, three uh, polyps that were about to turn cancerous. The doctor had said they were probably only a matter of weeks or months away from turning cancerous. And at 29, that really shocked me. That really scared me. And I thought my body was out to get me. So uh, further, I wanted to get control. I, and I thought control came in what I was putting in my body or how often I was working out. So it just continued to worsen. And I continued to lean on these food rules even more and more. And after that health scare, that's when I really started to cut whole food groups out because I was convinced just one wrong bite of a, a conventional banana and not an organic banana was gonna cause cancer. I thought it would contaminate my body. So there was this constant fear that uh, if I was eating the wrong things, then cancer would show up or disease would show up. And that's really when it started to escalate quickly. That's when it started to take off was at age 29. And then just a couple of years later, we would enter the pandemic. And again, the entire world felt like it was spinning out of control and I needed control. So again, I was turning to these food rules and I, that's when I really doubled down. I was like, well, if I can't go out and see my friends or I can't go to work every day, then I'm just gonna sit at home and I'm gonna diet as hardcore as I can and I'm gonna exercise as hardcore as I can. And when this whole thing's over, everybody's gonna be so impressed with me because I'm gonna be so healthy and I'm gonna have this perfect body and all of that just kept running through my mind. And then of course it was during the course of the pandemic that I would hit rock bottom. And that is when my, my husband spoke up and I started to seek help. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's, that's quite a journey that you've been on. Um, it, you know, the, the wellness industry picking up on the, um, you know, the, the cancer, that that's one thing that they, 
they do like to home in on, don't they? You know, or this this will help you not get cancer. Or there, there, there's all these wild claims, and for somebody that's been through something like like you, it's it it makes it even harder to you know you 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 listen to it because it's like oh well this is backed by this study and but then when you look into it deeper a lot of the studies are sponsored by you know the food companies or you know and and it it's it's quite scary that it's not as clear cut as as what we're led to believe and um yeah it's yeah, very yeah. scary it's one of those yeah. things where if yeah. you look hard enough on the internet you can find something bad about any food out there yeah. i mean i got to the point where i was cutting out berries because i was convinced the sugar in those would cause cancer or tumors so it's one of those things where we have way too much information at our fingertips sometimes it's it's terrifying like you're right you can find i think it's the same with everything you can find the negative in anything that you type into google now you mm -hmm. can find and it's it's bad as well because when you're in that mindset it gives you the justification when you you almost need someone to tell you that what you're doing is right so if you type in the negative like searching for the negatives of berries then it'll bring up all the negatives rather than telling you all over the positives and mm -hmm. it's no wonder that you know you seek out that control because that's a lot of trauma to have gone through from such a young age and it's amazing that you have come out of it so strong so at what point did you meet your husband in in all of all of this journey because you as you said you he saw your personality change so mm -hmm. it must it I'm imagining it wasn't right at the beginning but somewhere in the middle yeah somewhere in the middle it was um kind of at the end of that really turbulent period in my early 20s where I was facing the homelessness and the arrest and the eviction and stuff like that so it was shortly after that I met him when I was 25 so a little over 10 years ago now and he was really the the person that helped me build my life back together and having him in my life um, I think when that health scare came along was another reason why I was so driven to to eat as healthy as I could or to take as good a care of myself because I didn't want to leave him. I had seen the pain that my mom had experienced when my dad died, and I didn't want to do that because we were we were in love and our relationship, our lives were just starting together. So uh, that was a kind of another driving factor where I was so uh, scared that if I ate the wrong thing that you know I could lose my life and not be there for him but I didn't realize that I was going too far to the other extreme. And in the end, that almost cost me my life. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's quite, you know, going back to kind of like, you know, the orthorexia and, and um, it being taken more seriously in, in the right circles, you know, it, it must be very, very difficult for people you know, it, that are, you know, in, in, in much larger bodies as well, because if they go to the doctors or if they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with eating healthy or like, they're just going to be applauded. And yeah, it, it just came into my mind um, when you mentioned about, you know, when you were younger and um, being um, in a, in a larger body as a, as a child, um, 
there is so much pressure, so much pressure There's, for, for any size, really, to be honest, because whatever size we are, there's, there's some marketing out there to say us, tell us that we're not not the size that we should be or, you know. Yeah, as a guy, um, you know, originally I was in that larger body and I lost the weight. And then it was like, I felt like I was too small. I wanted to build muscle. And that was another driving factor with the orthorexia and something you touched upon earlier. I was obsessed with protein. I had what I call protein anxiety. It was never enough protein. I had to eat as much protein as I possibly could. And I worked out multiple times a day because I wanted to have those bulging muscles. I wanted to have that rippling six pack. But the problem is I wasn't eating enough. I might have been working out enough to do it, but I wasn't eating enough. And um, I would see it online all the time. And it made me really question, I think, my masculinity, too, and being a man, because I couldn't build muscle like all of these other guys that you see celebrated on social media or in the media all the time. Do you think that being a man as well made it more difficult for you to recognize and to address the fact that you had these issues because, you know, men don't get eating disorders and men don't struggle with mental health and, and all of that stigma that comes with being a man, you're not, you're not allowed to, to own up to it almost. And it is getting better, but I imagine that that is almost another internal battle that you have to have with yourself. Absolutely. That was one of the contributing factors, I believe, to my eating disorder is the fact that I went through all that trauma early in my life, but I never spoke up. I never said I wasn't okay. I never wanted to let anybody think that I was sad or stressed or insecure because I thought that would be a sign of weakness because that's just, that's thrown on us as little boys where it's like, boys don't cry and man up and toughen up. So that's exactly what I was doing. And I was just suppressing all of this pain inside. And I think that that also fueled my uh, disordered relationship with food. And then also, as I was coming to terms with my eating disorder, that was definitely a barrier to treatment because for so long, I didn't think guys could battle an eating disorder. So the thought of an eating disorder never crossed my mind. And I think for a lot of the people around me, including even my my primary care physician and my immediate circle of friends, I don't think anybody ever suspected an eating disorder because again, they're not thinking about it in a guy. Um, and they're probably thinking of the stereotypes too, such as anorexia and bulimia when it comes to eating disorders. They're not thinking that this obsession with healthy eating could also be an eating disorder. So I had both of those things serving as a barrier to treatment for me. Then when I finally started to reach out for help, it was difficult to find help because every time I would go to a website for support, it was usually a bunch of skinny females that I would see. And it made me feel like I was out on an island. It made me feel like maybe there was just something wrong with me and I was the only person or the only guy that was experiencing this eating disorder. So it oftentimes made me question whether I was sick enough for help because the last thing I wanted to do was take away resources from people who were sick. And it was one of those things that as a guy battling this unspecified eating disorder, it really made me question whether I deserved help or not. And that was, that's what makes what you do so, so important. Because, I mean, it's so true that representation matters. If you don't see someone that looks like you or that is like you suffering with the same thing, then, it, you know, you said it yourself, it kind of, it, it 
devalid invalidates it really it kind of just makes you think that it you know you're making it up or, or all these all these things have you had quite a lot of people reach out um based on on all the work that you've done and and the book and things yeah i have had so many people reach out to me especially men who have reached out to me and one who have battled eating disorders but two just men who have struggled with their mental health yeah. uh, and it is such a powerful experience i think for both of us because in that moment we realize that we're not alone there are still days where i wake up and i'm struggling with the eating disorder or with my anxiety or my ocd and it's great to be able to connect with other guys who are going through similar experiences because we both realize we're not alone. We inspire and empower each other through this connection. And um, I think about the, the night before my book came out, I was feeling extremely vulnerable. I was feeling extremely exposed because for so long I'd kept my story to myself. And here it was about to be shared with the entire world. Well, the very next day, I started to hear from people across the world, including people as far away as New Zealand, who told me that my story helped them get the help that they deserved, to help them share their struggles with their family or their friends. Um, I even had my best friend reach out to me and share her eating disorder struggles. Turns out we'd both been battling in silence for years and neither one of us knew it. So it was one of those things where I realized the strength and vulnerability in that moment because I was feeling so vulnerable right before the book came out. And because I embraced that vulnerability, other people were getting the help that they deserved. And that's kind of that wow moment for me when I realized that I needed to get out there and share my story with, with anybody who would be willing to listen because you never know who needs to hear it. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's something that we've spoken about quite a lot because when you're struggling with something, you feel like you're the only one. You, you really feel like you're alone in it or you almost feel a little bit alien, like, you shouldn't talk about it because everyone's just going to judge you for it. It's not going to be something that people are going to support you for. And, and they're just going to think that you're weird or that, you know, there's something wrong with you. And, and then they will distance themselves from you. But actually, once you start to talk about things, that's when you find more support than, than you could ever possibly imagine. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that I just want to go back to is you mentioned that you questioned whether you were sick enough. And I think that is a huge thing for people with eating disorders because you always go back to, yeah, but I'm not that bad because you haven't been hospitalized or, mm -hmm. you know, you're not a death star or you're not, you don't have bones poking out or you, because you're still eating and you're still fueling your body and it's not just about that physical illness where yes for you, you you got to that point where you were killing yourself but mentally it's just it's just as bad and it's just as you're torturing yourself so there's no such thing as not sick enough is there because it's just if you think that there is something wrong that is enough to need to seek help so when you you finally got to that stage where you you were looking for help and you struggled to find the right help 
where did you get to sort of with the right path and, and what sort of help did you receive? Yeah, so uh, to go back on, on your point really quick there, it was interesting because when my husband read my book, he was like, wow, I didn't realize you were battling this eating disorder for so long. He's like, I thought maybe you were just battling it for a year or two. And that's because in that last year or two is when maybe I physically look like the stereotype of an eating disorder. So it was one of those things where even the person closest to me didn't realize that for 15 plus years, I had been battling this thing because I didn't have the eating disorder look. I didn't look like what people would expect to see. So that to me just showed me right there that an eating disorder does not have an appearance. It does not have a look. But um, now to answer your question, when it, when it came to treatment, that was a huge, huge um, issue for me at first. I was diagnosed by my primary care physician with an unspecified eating disorder, as well as OCD and anxiety. And I asked him, I was like, okay, who do I talk to now? Where do I go for help? And he didn't know. He was like, your situation is unique. He's like, I'm not really sure who to refer you to. So why don't you go home and Google for resources? And I was shocked because I was thinking that if I was having a heart condition, he'd send me to a heart specialist. If there's something wrong with my foot, I'd be at the foot specialist. But here I was receiving this diagnosis and he didn't know who to send me to. So I got back home and I'm looking, it was usually all of these young females or people talking about anorexia or bulimia and none of it felt like it fit me. I felt like I had this other eating disorder that maybe wasn't as serious because it, it couldn't even have a name. It didn't even have, have a formal label. So um, after a couple weeks of searching, I probably reached out to 20 plus therapists I connected with a therapist who said, I'm not familiar with eating disorders. I really haven't worked with a lot of clients who have battled an eating disorder, but I see this unresolved pain inside. I see this insecurity. I see this past trauma. And he's like, let's work through that and see if you can begin to heal the relationship with yourself and then with food. So I gave him a chance and I still work with him to this very day. He has been a cornerstone in my recovery process. And it's so interesting and fascinating to me because like I said, he wasn't an eating disorder expert by any means. He was just somebody who saw the underlying factors that were contributing to this eating disorder. And we were able to talk through that and to start working through that. One of the most profound assignments that he gave me was to write my story out because he thought if I wrote my story out, I'd better be able to share it with other people. So after I wrote it out, I read it back to myself to kind of edit it. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, the guy in the story was simply trying to do the best he could to survive. He was always enough. He's a pretty good guy. And in that moment, I started to gain self-compassion. And I think that was a major turning point then in my recovery was to be able to begin to love and accept myself for who I am. In addition to working with a therapist, I also started working with a nutritionist who would start to heal that relationship with food, who would start to kind of um, un unwrite or erase all those food rules that I had in my mind. And she would give me challenges every week to try to, you know, push my boundaries just a little bit more. 
But what I appreciated about her was that she didn't just give me a meal plan and say, just eat. She worked with me through things. She said, okay, well, if you, if you can only get, you know, one sandwich in for lunch this week, cause bread's still too scary for you. She's like, let's do that. And we worked on it and we built that up over time. So working with both of them were, were critical to my recovery. I'd say the third aspect that also came along was um, journaling and um, reading. I read so much. I wanted to learn as much as I could from other individuals who had battled eating disorders. So I started to read a lot of eating disorder memoirs um, to understand my struggle a little bit better. I felt through reading other people's, I could understand my own better. And I also kept a journal by my side. I kept a journal by my side to write down those moments when I was dealing with, with the tough things or to write the moments where I was celebrating the good things. And that is something I still often go back to refer to. So that was kind of my homework because I realized that eating disorder recovery is not just about appointment with your nutritionist. You've got to do the work in between too. Yeah. How, how was your relationship with exercise as you were going through that? And how was it um, now, because I know you mentioned about, you know, working to, to build muscles. I mean, what what sort of movement do you do do now and how do you feel about it? Yeah. So back back when I was battling the eating disorder, I was working out several times a day. I had a, a personal trainer for a long time who, again, he couldn't even see the, the signs of what was happening. But I would oftentimes work out two to three times a day, just couldn't take a rest day at all. And that was one of the most difficult things in my recovery process was accepting that it's okay to take a break. So now I schedule in at least one rest day every single week. And I, if I pre-schedule it, then I stick to it. I force myself to take that rest day. But there's still times when I struggle with that, when I, I wanna get out there and, and work out more. So um, it, my relationship has changed now to the point where it's no longer I have to work out to burn off these calories or I have to work out to earn this next meal. It's I'm working out because I want to, because it's fun. Um, through working out, it enables me to do the activities that I enjoy to do, such as play tennis or um, hike or climb. Those are the things I enjoy to do. So when I'm working out now, I realize that I'm training my body to do those types of activities. It's no longer a form of punishment or a form of allowing myself to be able to eat something. So my relationship with exercise has definitely changed uh, in the recovery process. That's really good to hear. That's, uh... And it's interesting that you say, you know, it wasn't an eating disorder specialist that you work with, because I think it it's important to note that a lot of eating disorders or the majority of them actually have nothing to do with the food. It's mm. very rarely to do with the food. It's usually to do with something else in your life. So it's, it's the eating disorder gives you a sense of control over something somehow. And it's, it's working through that trauma. Um, and then obviously you're saying you were diagnosed with OCD and, and anxiety as well. So how how do you cope with those alongside the eating disorder? Because I think quite often the three do come hand in hand because the obsession with food is not, and then the anxiety over food. Uh, but do they fit into other parts of your life as well? 
Yeah. So, so the one thing I always say is that food is just a tangible evidence of an eating disorder, but it's often there's so many underlying factors. And for me, the anxiety and the OCD were also contributing to it. I was becoming obsessed. I was having these compulsive behaviors around food. I was experiencing the anxiety around food. And um, all of that did play a factor. So I see the three of them going hand in hand in hand with each other. And it's something that through working through my anxiety and my OCD, I've been able to heal, I think, that relationship with not just myself, but with food as well. Um, it, it's one of those things where I think that's why working with my therapist who wasn't necessarily a specialist in um, eating disorders, he was a specialist when it came to anxiety and with OCD. And through getting those things under control, it's definitely helped me out a lot. I'll notice that if, um, if my anxiety's heightened that day, then it's harder for me to, to eat some, some foods. If my OCD is uh, harder that day, then I'll notice I'm planning out my meals farther in advance again, or I'm starting to research restaurants again. So it's one of those things where I have to keep an eye on all three. I've got to keep them, them under control. And that's why journaling is so important for me, because if I wake up and I am struggling that day, I can write it in my journal. And another thing that I work to break the stigma around is medication. I have to take medication for my anxiety and for my OCD. And at first I felt like that made me a failure. It was like some sort of easy escape out. But I realize now that I have to do that. That's part of my life right now in order to, to properly heal and to recover. I still have to put in the work. Just taking medication isn't just a, an on-off switch for anxiety and OCD, but it does help to keep that under control. And through keeping that under control, I can continue to beat orthorexia. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how many people will ha take medication um, or they will know someone that takes medication and they can they can justify other people taking it. I, I have a, a friend who it, now she takes medication for her. She suffers with depression and anxiety. And in the past, she'd taken medication and said, you know, there's no shame in it. Anybody that needs it, needs it. I I had to take it at one point. Now I'm, I'm okay. But then when she got back to that place, she fought against taking the medication despite knowing it helped her because she had that stigma back in her head again. And, and it's, it, it's like, if you if you had a headache, you would you would take painkillers for your headache, but to take a, a medication that will literally help your brain, for some reason we feel like that's that's not acceptable and that's not normal when really it's the most normal and natural thing in the world because it's a hormone imbalance. It's it's something that it levels you out and it helps. And if it helps you to feel better in your everyday life, why wouldn't you do it? Exactly, exactly. That's why I like to say that the words physical and mental can be interchangeable at times, because if you're dealing with a physical illness, you'll take medication. If you're dealing with a mental illness, 
people will often struggle with taking that medication. The same thing goes for a therapist. If you've got a physical injury, you'll go to the physical therapist in a heartbeat. But if you're dealing with mental illness, it's, it's difficult to go see that mental therapist. So it's one of those things where we have to learn that those words are interchangeable. If you're willing to do it for your physical health, you should be willing to do it for your mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. When did you decide to write your book then? Yeah, so um, it kind of just happened. I feel like the book decided itself. It was one of those things where I was writing a blog post. So I had launched my blog, Orthorexia Bites, back in February of 2021, about uh, six or seven months into my recovery journey. And I was inspired to do that by um, our Good Morning America anchor over here, uh, Robin Roberts, who has a, a mantra of making your mess your message. And I realized that my mess was my life was up until that point, all the trauma that I've overcome, all everything that I've had to battle and everything I've experienced. And I knew I needed to get out there and make that my message so that other people knew that they weren't alone. Other men didn't know that they were alone and that people knew what orthorexia really was. So I launched the blog. And uh, once the blog was out there, I was writing a post one day and I was just reflecting back upon my childhood and kind of what I hinted upon earlier, where it was like I was an intuitive eater. And then all of a sudden those bullies came along and, and then I joined Weight Watchers and this post just kept going and going and going. And before I knew it, I had 50,000 words down on this thing that I thought was going to be a blog post. And I realized I've got a transcript here. I've got at the start of a book. So I started to, to work with somebody else who had recently published her story as an eating disorder survivor. And we worked together to put this book on. And uh, it, it was really cool to me. Writing has always been an outlet for me. It's always been a passion of mine. So it was so important to get that out there to, to raise the awareness and hopefully encourage other people who are struggling um, to know that they are not alone, to know that they are worthy of help, and uh, to know that, you know, help exists, They're, they are they are enough and they are worth it. So um, yeah, writing the book was, was something that I kind of just stumbled upon. It was never my initial plan, but I'm so glad it's out there now. I imagine. Yeah, I bet writing the book itself was probably a, a, a huge sort of part of your own therapy as well. You know, you mentioned about how helpful um, journal journaling is, it's, uh, yeah, I can imagine it. It helped you a lot. That was exactly yeah, what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it was cathartic as well, almost like a release. And you probably wrote things that, you know, you'd forgotten about yourself or you didn't even realize. And, and then writing it down, you probably, I imagine, surprised yourself with some of those things. Yeah, it was incredible the memories that started coming back to me or to be able to reflect upon different events in my life and really examine how I truly felt in those moments. Because for so long, I was wearing this mask and I was saying, I'm okay, I'm, I'm doing all right, but I really wasn't all right. But I think what had happened is I'd gotten so good at lying to other people that I was also lying to myself. So I didn't know what I was authentically feeling going back and writing this book and reliving those experiences again made me understand what I truly felt in that moment. And it, it was such an important part of, of my recovery journey. And that's one thing I was, I was recently asked, um, when should I start to share my story? I was asked by somebody who has been battling an eating disorder and they, they want to get out 
out there and to start helping people. And they were like, I don't feel like I'm recovered enough yet to start sharing my story. And I was like, there's never a, a right time or a wrong time to start sharing your story. For me, it's become ingrained in my recovery journey. This advocacy work that I do is helping me heal. Writing that book helped me heal. So those are parts of my recovery journey now. So if somebody's battling an eating disorder, start sharing your story, get it out there because nothing, nothing bad can come from it. If anything, it's gonna be more healing. And uh, that's what I've experienced in my own journey. How is your relationship with friends and family and your husband, how has that changed since you've started seeking help and you've been more open and honest? Yeah, well, for starters, me and my husband have never been closer. Um, our relationship has definitely gotten stronger uh, because he's finally able to see the full me, the full authentic me. And I, I, I'm no longer that negative person that I was or that angry or aggressive person. And we can enjoy our vacations and our holidays now because I don't have to pre-plan everything. So uh, our relationship has definitely gotten stronger. My relationship with my friends has changed. It's gone from formerly just being the people that I'd hang out with to have fun or to grab a couple beers together. And now we have deep, meaningful conversations. I feel like once I introduced vulnerability into the group, others started to become more vulnerable and started to open up. So we talk about things that maybe before we wouldn't talk about, we go deeper. So again, those relationships are strengthening. And uh, it's the same with family. I'm not living behind this mask anymore. I'm being my authentic self. So uh, my relationships overall have definitely strengthened. Um, there's been a couple that have kind of fallen by the wayside, but I think that's just kind of how life goes. And sometimes um, friends that were maybe close friends 10 years ago aren't close friends at this point in your life. And, and that just happens. So um, I realized that recovery has changed me. I've become a, a, a bit, I've become a better version of myself. I'm still Jason at the end of the day, but I'm just a, a deeper version of myself. And for some people that can be extremely uncomfortable. So I have had a couple of friends where maybe we've drifted apart for the time being, but hopefully we'll reconnect down the road here. That's amazing. And how do you feel? I feel incredible. I when when you first introduced me today, and you know, you mentioned the word survivor, you mentioned the word author. Those are things I can't believe. I look back at where I was two years ago and just how I was at rock bottom at that point. And uh, I cannot believe how far I've come and how great it is to be able to wake up every single day and to not be controlled by those eating disorder thoughts. I still have my tough days. I mean, that's part of the process. I don't know if those will ever fully go away where I will have a challenging day here and there. But for the most part, I can wake up now and just enjoy my life. And that's like the best gift of all. So I am I am feeling great right now. Um, that is, It's just so nice to hear. And the change that you have made for so many people will be incredible. It's it's wonderful that you do hear from people, but also there'll be so many who you don't hear from that you don't even know what you've done for their lives because you will probably be in that position as well where when you started to unlearn all of these things and you started to seek recovery, there'll have been people who will have said things and and even probably the anchor that you've just mentioned, the, the change that she's made in your life and she's 
probably never going to know it or maybe she will maybe one day she's going to read your book and she'll she'll start researching and, and she'll listen to this podcast and she'll know what change she's made in her life but it's, it's incredible how many lives you can touch without even knowing it so for people who are struggling who are out there and they don't know how to go about seeking help or how to even start what advice would you give them yeah, so the first thing I would say to them is that they are not alone and that they are worth the help. So reach out to somebody, anybody, whether that's your doctor, whether that's a friend, whether that's a complete stranger. For me, I realized telling my story to complete strangers at first was easier than telling it to the people who were closest to me because maybe I didn't feel like I had as much to lose. You know, if uh, some average person on the street didn't want to be my friend anymore. Well, that's fine. But I didn't want to lose my best friend of 20 years. So so tell somebody, find somebody to, sh to, to, to tell this to and reach out for help. It might be scary and uh, that's okay. Like that's, it's a major step outside of our comfort zones to ask for help. But I like to say that when I lived in my comfort zone is when the eating disorder thrived. Now that I've stepped out, I'm beginning to thrive. So it's one of those things where it's okay to be scared. It's okay to, to, to be nervous about asking for help, but it's the best thing that you can do for yourself. So I think it's important to, to share it with somebody so that you're not alone in this experience or in this journey. And then, you know, talk to your doctors, find out what the next steps are and never give up. It might be difficult to find help at first. It was for me, but I kept trying and I kept trying. And then finally I connected with a team who, who has been able to, to uh, help me put the pieces back together again. I think it's so important what you said, that knowing that you're worth the help, you're worth the help. And I think that's such an important sentence. It's like when I say to people, take up space. You deserve to take up any space that you that you want. You deserve to get any help that you that 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 you can. It's it's if you're struggling, and as as um Amy said before, you know, is this if you're struggling, then you know it's it's valid. You deserve help. Um, and I know that when you're so deep in it, your confidence and the way that you perceive yourself is can be very very low. Um, but it it's finding that strength to actually take that step and um yeah it was one that, of those that's when you can find it's cheese and freedom it's it's true <laughs> yeah yeah that reminds me of uh the intake form that i had to fill out for my therapist and one of the questions was what are your strengths and at that moment i left it blank because I didn't think I had any strengths, but it was through therapy that I identified those strengths. So it's one of those things where I've been there. If somebody feels like they're not strong enough for recovery, I was in those same shoes. And uh, now two years later, I'm getting my life back. So um, you might not even recognize the strengths that you have right now if you're battling, but, but keep pushing through it and you'll identify those along the way. Yeah, and right now I would class you as one of the strongest people I think I've ever met, ever spoken to, because your story is absolutely incredible. And just I hope that you keep telling it. I know that, you know, even your blog I've read through and some of the stories, uh, it's it's just nice because the the normal stories as well, not 
you just talk about yourself so I think one of the ones I was reading was when your husband proposed to you and the ring was far too big and you had to go and find a Claire's and get and just it, it is just normal life things and I think things like that make you relatable and it makes it easier for someone who is struggling to to just say see that you're a normal person and this happens to normal people it it doesn't make you you know a, a crazy person it doesn't make you a bad person it's 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 just life so thank you so much for what you're doing thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for coming on and speaking to us and letting people hear more about you Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me again and uh, for everything that you do to, to raise this awareness and to uh, change the narrative and to change lives. So uh, thank you again for the work that you both are doing and for uh, having me on today. Oh, thank you. I, I've been quite quiet this podcast because I've just been so in awe of like just listening. It's not like me to be lost for words, but I've just been like, Wow. So thank you so much for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's been wonderful. Have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you. Take care.